You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 18th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, Bob. It's good to have you back. It's kind of nice to be back. It's kind of nice. <laughs> How was Disney World? Kinda. Disney Magic Kingdom is awesome. I can. I've gone so many times. I'm not never tired of it. <laughs> Three times, Pirates of the Caribbean, and we had um, Haunted Mansion twice. Top of the Pirates of the Caribbean of the Caribbean ride. They now wave to you instead of you waving. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Yeah, they're like <laughs> nice Bob. Bob. Yeah. Bob. Yo ho, yo ho, a pirate's <laughs> life for me. I love that. Well, welcome back. Uh, Rebecca, tell us about this day in skepticism. I would love to, Steve. I was originally going to talk about how on January 21st in 1799, Edward Jenner's smallpox vaccination was introduced. Mm -hmm. However, we talk about that all the time. All the time. So, (laughs) all the time. So, instead, I thought I would go with on January 20th, 1885, the Marcus Adna Thompson patented the first roller coaster. Now, he never claimed to have invented the roller coaster, but he was definitely instrumental in creating and popularizing them all over the U.S. and Europe. Uh, this first roller coaster that he patented was the Switchback Railway at Coney Island, which had already become a big tourist destination by 1885. And on the Switchback Railway, tourists would climb a tower and then sit down sideways in a car that carried them 600 feet to another tower. And then the car was switched over to a return track and sent back, which, okay, isn't the most exciting ride in the world. But for 1885, you have no idea. It was crazy. The design he created was most likely based on a railway in what is now known as Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, known back then as Malch Chunk. So it's called the Malch Chunk Switchback Railway. You can see why they switched it to Jim Thorpe, Malch <laughs> Chunk. Um, but the the Switchback w- Railway there was a nine-mile gravity railroad that was built in 1827 to carry coal from the mines to the chutes. And it was so scenic and fun to ride that it soon became a tourist attraction. And it got to the point where it would carry coal in the mornings and passengers in the afternoon. So... Uh, Thompson most likely used that as the template to create the first roller coaster. Interesting. And you guys might be reminded of the Katoomba Scenic Railway, mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah. which yeah we all rode while we were in Australia back in 2010. Yeah, that, that was, was the also... thing that where I, I was terrified. Remember? Yes, you were. <laughs> it, it, it was pretty scary, and that it too was. was originally built to move coal. So the same sort of thing. Uh, that one was built sometime between 1878 and 1900, and it too was also turned into a tourist attraction. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's called the world's steepest railway. Uh, though at the time I wrote it, I suggested that it could have been called the world's most boring roller coaster. I had no idea that those sort of railways were actually the forerunners of roller coasters. So, yeah, January 20th, 1885, the first roller coaster was patented. Thompson later went on to, to patent a bunch more um, things, particularly a roller coaster that featured tunnels and scenery, which he called the Scenic Railway. The next time you ride a roller coaster, you should thank LaMarcus Adna Thompson. I will do that. I'm never, I'm never riding that. that thing again, by the way. That was oh, so Jay. fun. Come on. Yeah, but Jay, I sat in the front, moon. and when, we, when we, they brought us back up like the mountain, 
That was and worse I, than going down. And I was in the front. <laughs> it was like you're being pulled backwards on a roller coaster, and I, it, it was like being dangled from a string, and then slowly like inching me up the mountain. And I was I can't even think about it. It's ridiculous. <laughs> All right, uh, we we uh, have a bit of sad news at the beginning of the show. I don't know if you guys ever met Ajita Kamal. Uh, he started a an Indian podcast called Nirmukta or Nirmukta. Yeah, I was on that. He recorded me at uh, at Nexus two years ago. Uh, met him. Very nice guy. Very enthusiastic. Oh, he was at Nexus. He was at Nexus. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Maybe I did meet him. And uh, so, unfortunately, he died recently. A young oh guy. I mean, he was uh, born in 1978. So he was a third. What happened? In his, Steve? His early thirties. We don't know. So he sort of fell off the radar for a few days. Nobody knew wh- what was going on and where he was. And then uh, the word came down that they they actually had to search for him, and they said that they recovered his body somewhere near his residence. There's a formal investigation. But no further details have been made publicly available. So that's all we know is that he essentially was missing for a short time, and then they they found his body. Um, so it clearly was. Wow. Well, it doesn't sound like it was natural causes. You know, it sounds like something untoward happened. Um, very, very tragic, very unfortunate. So just want to uh, mention that and, and you know give our sympathies to his his fans in India. And uh, you know, it's just sad to lose a young, enthusiastic skeptic. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go on to some positive news, some happy news. Jay, Nexus 2012. Give us the skinny. So, guys, Nexus 2012. I think it's happening in 2012. It's happening in I'm 2012, not, not mistaken. Two out, one, two. <laughs> Nexus 2012. 2012. So, yeah, this is our fourth conference on science and skepticism. That's what Nexus stands for. Did you know that, Evan? I did, yes. Yes, well, our fourth conference that we are co-hosting. It's actually the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. So we're having that April 21st to 22nd. That's Saturday and Sunday. And if you come early, if you come Friday, we have a few events that are happening on Friday as well. And you should just go to the website. It's necss.org. And we have all the information there. You can register on the site. You can see a list of the speakers. You know, we have an ever-growing list. We have a lot of panels happening this year. We have two live podcasts. We have the SGU live recording, and we have a Rationally Speaking live recording, which is always good. Once again, we're running the Nexus Student Sponsorship Program. So if you're interested in being sponsored to come to Nexus this year for free, just go to the website, take a look at the parameters that you have to meet. You have to write a short summary you have to be of a certain age and a few other things. You have to be able to sing really well. Just come, take a look. R- really love to see your applications. And if you're interested in sponsoring a student, go to the website too. This year we have James Randy coming back. Always a pleasure. Seth Shostak, PZ Myers, who is always an enthusiastic speaker. Kevin Slavin, John Bohannon, Joe Nickel, Brian Wecht, Jamie in Swiss is emceeing again. Julia Galef will be there. She is a... Uh, one of the hosts of Rationally Speaking, along with Massimo Piliucci. George Crobb is returning. Joe. Andrew McAllister, Michael Rogers, Ethan Brown, and of course, the entire crew of the Skeptics Guide will be there to do a live show to meet our listeners. We'll have a table there. We'll you know, maybe be doing some other special events. We'll be available the whole weekend. Um, and, we, and we certainly make a huge effort at these live events to be as accessible as possible. So we hope to see a lot of our listeners there. Uh, go to necss.org. 
Also, if you are a member of the New York City Skeptics or the New England Skeptical Society, essentially if you have donated $25 or more to the NES or SGU in the last year, then contact the relevant organization for your discount code. You actually get a discount for Nexus. Uh, and seriously, at the, at the venue that we're at, we have sold out every time we were there. So um, if you don't want to miss out on getting a ticket, I would go early and, uh, and register. Good thinking. Fantabulous. All right, let's move on. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us how to take a picture of a black hole. Yes, I am. Long exposure. You might think that's an oxymoron, taking a picture of a black hole. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make sense if you know even a little bit about black holes. But um, according to some recent news, scientists may soon have a direct image, as Steve said, of of the black hole in the center of our galaxy. They're going to be using a virtual telescope as big as the Earth, and they may have for the first time a picture of the shadow of a black hole. It's actually something I never heard about, the shadow of a black hole, and I'll get into that later. But scientists are meeting this week actually to discuss this project. It is probably one of the coolest names for a telescope project, the Event Horizon Telescope. Obviously, building a real telescope as big as the Earth would be just a tad expensive and uh, time-consuming, but it's called a virtual telescope because it uses a common process called interferometry to combine the individual images of many telescopes into one big image. The cool thing is that if you have enough telescopes, the resulting image is comparable to the image of one ginormous telescope as big as the distance that separates all of them. The, The farther apart that they are, the bigger the actual telescope you'd be replicating. Now, in the case of the Event Horizon Project, they're using 50 radio telescopes around the world that when combined will give us an image as if we had, as I said, one radio telescope as big as the Earth itself. Now, it'll be far and away the most detailed picture of the center of our galaxy and the supermassive black hole that's that's ever been taken. But this is no small feat considering that the 4 million solar mass supermassive black hole is 26,000 light years away. And I think that's approximately 153 quintillion miles. That's really, really far away, even though, relatively speaking, it's close. It's still a whole bunch of miles. And uh, the black hole itself is about as big as Mercury's orbit. The orbit of Mercury is kind of big, but it's so far away. uh, Resolving this thing is actually kind of like seeing a grapefruit on the moon. As Steve said, you may think, uh, but, but black holes devour everything, even light. Uh, they're by definition invisible. That's true, but we, we can see the immediate vicinity around it. Uh, Demetrius Saltis, associate professor of astronomy and physics at uh, University of Arizona, recently said, we expect to see the swirling of matter going into the black hole in real time. What we're really hoping to see is how the black hole is fed. Now, it's even better than that, though. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. The glowing matter around a black hole should clearly delineate its shadow. Now, this shadow is actually the silhouette of its event horizon, which is the boundary in space-time around the hole that once you cross, there's no coming back, even if you're traveling at at the speed of light. You know, what might we see with, with such a view? Uh, some scientists are speculating that we could, we might be able to see real-time flaring events occurring near the black hole. Uh, we might see actual rotation of the supermassive black hole. Uh, we, could all, we could also examine very closely the accretion disk dynamics. The accretion disk is the disk of matter that is, that is swirling around and around, like going down a drain into the black hole. As it gets closer to the black hole, it heats up and em- em- emits the radiation that, that allows us to see this thing. And we also might be able to see extreme relativistic effects um, that's predicted to be acting on the volume of space around um, the black hole, which actually has a name. Do any of you know the name of the black hole? Joey. Thomas. No, Sagittarius A. I didn't know that. Uh, so this leads us to uh, to Einstein and a test of relativity. Doesn't it always? Yeah. 
appropriate. Now, uh, this theory predicts that the shadow should be perfectly circular. If it's not, then Einstein's got some splaining to do, and uh, we may find that GR, I'm sorry, we may find that general relativity needs some modification. But really, though, is there any doubt that, that this billionth test of his theory will succeed? It, it would be kind of cool if we found some special case uh, where general relativity fails and maybe get some new physics out of it, but I'm really not holding my breath. But still, there's, there's so much that we can get out of this. I really can't wait to see that, that first snapshot of, uh, of a black hole and its, and its event horizon. Bob, do you know how black holes are created? Yeah. That's where God divided by zero. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you try to do some serious <laughs> physics inside, you know, within the singularity, and yeah, you start dividing by zero, and uh, things kind of get wacky. But uh, but w- just, Jay, do you know wh- how black holes are created? Come yeah. on. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I just choose not to yeah, say I right now. choose not to say, but I do know. Yeah. Yeah, there's, the- I'm sure you do know, but did you know that there's, there's two ways that I'm aware of uh, to create them? One, of course, is... Uh, uh, the collapse of, uh, of of giant stars, but uh, after after a supernova. But also, the black holes were created after the Big Bang. And the cool thing about that is that um, the black holes that were created were probably less massive than the minimum required for a star to create a black hole. So you could. Um, so I'm sure the black uh, the the uh, Big Bang created these black holes with you know relatively very little mass. And uh, chances are they they've already kind of evaporated away because through Hawking radiation and stuff. Uh, Black holes eva- slowly, very slowly evaporate over time, and uh, over you know many, many billions or trillions of years, eventually they- they'll all evaporate. But some of these, some of those from the Big Bang, I'm sure, were so tiny that they've already already evaporated. Another way to make a black hole doesn't have to be the remnant of, of a supermassive star; it could be two smaller remnants that combine together. Yeah, you, yeah that's and, true. And then get over get over the threshold. Yeah, to two yeah, two colliding hole. neutron star. I mean still still yeah. they're the byproducts of of yeah. supermassive stars, but true, there's another mechanism. Or it could be you have like a neutron star that has a companion star and it sucks off enough matter from the companion star to again get over that mass threshold and and uh become a black hole. Yeah, get uh what is it get getting past uh neutron degeneracy. Uh, and Jay, you're also going to tell us uh, about the next news item, which has been all over the news t- as we record this show. Wikipedia is actually in blackout. Yeah, so Wikipedia, Reddit, and there was about estimated 10,000 other websites that, that blacked out their pages today in protest network. to SOPA and, and uh, Poopa, I mean Pippa. <laughs> they, they all showed warnings on their websites and, and, and several of them gave links to contact your congressman and everything. And, and actually, it really seems that this effort worked. I mean, it really got the word out. And we had um, quite a number of politicians, I think it was up to six last I checked, that actually backed out of supporting uh, SOPA and PIPA. So the uh, Protect IP Act of 2011, PIPA, and the Stop Online Piracy Act, known as SOPA, these are two legislative initiatives that, that both attempt to deal with the global online copyright and trademark infringement. I don't disagree with the government getting involved in trying to do some policing of online piracy and the illegal distribution of copyrighted material. You know, there's definitely a line that I think they, they would be going too far, like, of course, with these two pieces of legislation. But there's definitely things that can be done that would be a positive overall. And let's face it, if somebody created material, you know, it, it should not be illegally distributed, especially at a, at a degree where they could 
they could put people out of business or when things that big happen. Of course, I disagree with it. But yeah, but, if we talk but, about first principles, just basic principles, we want a system in which the freedom of speech on the internet is protected, but at the same time, people's intellectual property are protected, so that. We want there to be an incentive for people to do a lot of work to create content, and people should do have a right to benefit from their hard their hard work and their intellectual property. So, how do we balance those two things? How do we balance intellectual property without squelching freedom? I, I agree that you know the the way that Congress set about doing it in either of these two proposals, SOPA or PIPA, those that's not the way. Whatever the compromise is, I don't think that they were anywhere near it. So, the way that, uh, and in very simplistic terms. The backbone to the internet is based on something called DNS, and that is the internet's domain name system. So to give you a quick understanding of how the DNS works, just think of it as your physical address at your home. The postal service delivers mail to you, and they know where you live because of your street address, and they, we use something called zip codes in the United States, which, help, which helps uh, localize your neighborhood and everything. But in the end, what it boils down to is a specific address that points to a specific location. And that's how the DNS works on the Internet for people's domain names. So what they're proposing is that they would be able to, that people that complain about another person's site and also giving very little detail into what the problem is, more of just issuing the complaint is it would give them power enough to knock your website off the internet. They basically would remove you from the DNS listing, meaning that nobody would be able to find your website. They force like IP servers and I mean, basically everyone else on the internet not to point to you, not to do anything that would allow people to get to you on the internet, so you become invisible, essentially. Yeah, it would affect U.S. internet service providers, domain name registries, domain name registrars, operators of domain name servers, which is a category that includes hundreds of thousands of small, medium-sized businesses, colleges, universities, nonprofit organizations. I mean, basically anyone that's part of the domain name system, anyone that has data addresses that are stored to point people to where other websites exist. What would happen if this, if this legislation got passed? What would happen? And part of this is things that I've read and part of this is my opinion. But it's believed that it would quickly inspire programmers to write software that would easily get around what SOPA and PIPA are blocking. And what we would see would be something along the lines of easily installed plugins to your browser that would just seamlessly ignore the channels that block the addresses. So you would get to the sites that you want to get to anyway with maybe a little bit more of a delay. That would be like layer one. Then layer two, I, I, I think it would be reasonable to say that if things got really bad, then you would find that there would be other ways of navigating through the Internet, that other address systems would come up. It would be like the post office trying to deliver you something, but there's multiple address systems. Like you might have four street addresses at your single house. You know, Imagine if you, your street name had three or four names, and you, depending on who you're talking to, you have to give them a different address so they know how to get to you. And it would become, it would become a catastrophic mess on the web. So my understanding, Jay, is that the law would essentially force people to break the DNS system in order to get around it. Right. And we would. Every single person that cares about going to, to websites and that you know is a frequent user of the internet would install free software and just circumnavigate anything that they put in place anyway because you know what? They, they would not be able to police it. 
It just wouldn't be policeable. It would, it would inconvenience a lot of people, and then we would just continue to have workarounds to get around it. And, you know, this, the, it even goes deeper than that. There's really, the devil is in the details here. And it's a really bad devil that I'm talking about. You know, there, there would even be like telling banks and advertising companies that they could not advertise with companies that are blocked. So they would be affecting, they would be affecting a lot of online business and that would have an effect on the economy. And both bills describe procedures that are actually not constitutionally legitimate, which blows my mind. Like, think of it like this. So accusations could be made in court and one without both parties being present, meaning that your site could be shut down with absolutely no warning. And this is called an ex parte proceeding. These are proceedings where only one side's need, one side of the, of the two parties need to be present. So you could Sweet. be, you could be taken to court and not even know it. And you don't have to be there and they don't even have to notify you. You'll know it when your site gets shut down. That's right. Yeah, so, this, yep. this has, you know, the, this directly relates to, um, the, those of you who are in, the UK, particularly in, in England, will understand what we're talking about because you already have horrific libel laws. The copyright laws, the, the copyright threats that would come in through SOPA would be similarly chilling for those of us in the US and around the world because they would allow people to sue very, very easily. We could no longer have an SGU forum for instance, it would just have to go. Basically, the, the legality of it would make it impossible to to produce content online. Yeah, it would be so easy to harass sites, to silence criticism. All you got to do is just make an accusation. Uh, it doesn't even have to be legitimate. The person doesn't have an ability to defend themselves. The way the law is written, it is completely broken from a legal point of view. And this is, this is mainly coming from a really good article, which I recommend on the Stanford Law Review. So there's an essay by Mark Lemley, David Levine, and, and David Post. So, you know, th- these are actual lawyers who know what they're talking about. And they, they make a very strong case that this is not only unconstitutional, it's anti-constitutional uh, for, for reasons, partly the reasons that we stated, that the accused doesn't have a right to, doesn't have the right to defend themselves. There's no due process before draconian measures are taken. So, yeah, I think I agree with Jay in that I can see Congress's heart may be in the right place, but this is a very flawed piece of... These two proposals are very both very flawed. They're very similar. And they have a heart? The, the reaction is uh, of you know, Wikipedia and other sites protesting it, I think, is appropriate, and I think it's hopefully going to at least put it on hold for a while until we can think this through more thoroughly. This is just too... Too rash. Steve, could you imagine how damning it would be? Companies would use this to put each other out of business. It would yeah. be a race to the finish line. I mean, all a competitor would have to do is drum up complaints about one of their competitors, get their website knocked off the internet, and that that could shut down a company. Well, could you imagine every crank, quack, and charlatan out there who wants to silence criticism of their nonsense, how easy it would be for them to completely shut down the online skeptical movement with this kind yeah, of... Yeah, and that's why I, I compare seconds. it to the, the libel law. I mean, yeah. it would be absolutely... It, it would be censorship. It would get down to, to censorship, yeah. very easy censorship exactly. of opponents. Um, the good news is that the protests are working a bit. I think that people are actually calling their uh, – Americans are, are calling their Congress people. Uh, internationally, people are causing a fuss, and it's sort of having an effect. Um, 
SOPA was technically shelved. Um, yeah. That's the, the Senate's version of it. Uh, it was shelved, but not defeated. So it is still lurking. And with, uh, PIPA, the, the most controversial part of it has been removed, or at least, um, one of the senators, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy has agreed to, uh, or, or has said he's willing to remove it. So there's that, but people should definitely continue to call their Congress people and complain and let them know that this is not, this is not good for the future of the internet. One uh, encouraging thing is that um, President Obama had said that he will not pass this in its current manifestation or basically any com- any uh, compromise bill that comes out of these two pieces of legislation in each house. So that's a good sign that our executive is, as of right now, uh, on our side in regards to this argument. But he kind of left the door open a little bit, too, to say, well, not as is, but if something else comes along, that he feels is more practical, that maybe he will go with something like that. The other good news on the SOPA front is that um, good news slash just hilarious news, I guess, is that uh, one of the SOPA authors, Senator Lamar Smith of Texas, has uh, apparently violated copyright on his own website. He stole an artist's... painting or photograph an artist's photograph and um, used it as the background to his website and the artist has made a statement saying that he did not give permission for that to be used so under the rules of SOPA uh, were it to pass that artist could make Lamar Smith's website completely unavailable so forever justice yeah Except some pigs are more equal than others, right. so somehow he his right. website would still be up. That would be my wager. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely an issue we have to keep an eye on. And just as the broader concept too of whittling away internet freedom for various reasons, for you know security, to meter the the web, the internet freedom cause is a, is an important one. We're in the you know a lot of people think we're in the golden age of the internet right now. And that it's never going to be as free as it is now. But uh, if we want it to stay that way, um, it's something we're going to have to jealously guard and keep an eye on. And you know, we talked recently about the hacker web, you know, putting up private satellites, creating sort of an alternate internet, essentially, that, that governments can't control. Maybe that's what will ultimately happen. There'll be this black internet, you know, that where an underground internet. But hopefully it doesn't come to that. Hopefully we'll have one seamless worldwide internet free flow of information. And, you know, we'll have to learn to adapt to the implications of that. And if we do want to take any measures to to limit piracy, which, again, I totally agree with, we have to take a really thoughtful, nuanced approach to that, not this sloppy, draconian mechanism that... It's just crazy. Coming down heavy-handed on everyone for the sake of... Don't just get this image of these like 60-plus guys in Congress who have no idea what the Internet is. The intertubes, the system of tubes, these are the people who are going to make legislation you know that's going to have dramatic effects on on the flow of information over the internet and 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 freedom of speech uh, i don't know maybe maybe that that judgment is incorrect but i just so I, I fear that there's that they're a little out of touch that they're just the wrong generation to be making this decision you know what i mean yeah i, I agree with i don't you, think you're wrong at all steve i i, I share that exact same thing. when i was a boy <laughs> 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 Interslice. <laughs> right. One more news item. 
This one, you know, we, we talk about homeopathy all the time, but sometimes an item comes up that is just so absurd, we can't resist pointing it out. <laughs> so recently, <laughs> a, uh, there, there was an article um, exploring the homeopathic treatment for burns, for burn injuries. And what do you think that treatment is? Fire! Yes. Hot scalding yeah. water. <laughs> a little right. bit of fire. Just a little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, you have oh. to take some away for it to be more effective. OMG. <laughs> yeah, you, so you actually add more heat to the burned area in order to get the body to heal itself mm-hmm. even more, which is, huh. of course, the exact opposite of what you should do. No, this is why they stick hy- uh, hypothermic patients in freezers. This yeah, right. Right. Makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And when you're having a, a hypoxic injury, you, know, you have too little oxygen to the, br- the brain, you should deprive the brain of even more oxygen. Yeah. That way it'll yeah. heal itself. Like <laughs> cures, yeah. like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you break a leg, break your other leg. Yeah. <laughs> if you get rabies, you just have a bunch more animals with rabies bite you. It's So excessive. I guess is, is homeopathy the hair of the dog kind of approach to yeah. medicine? <laughs> it is. But not as delicious, usually. <laughs> <laughs> in fact actually that's very astute particularly for this um for for this burn one because and you know as you go on to explain what the burn one is all about it'll become clearer to the listeners but the idea of hair of the dog is that you uh if you get drunk then the next day if you're starting to experience a hangover if you have a little bit of whatever you were drinking the night before that's supposed to cure the hangover when in fact, what it probably, if it works at all, what it probably does is it just gets you drunk again and just sort of prolongs, you know, your drunkenness to the point where you don't have the hangover for at least another couple of hours. So that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So you you think it's it's making it better, but in fact, um, you've actually sort of made it worse. No, you have so, made it worse. You just yeah, delaying so, your. You just don't notice it for a while. Right. So actually, this, yeah, this actually, actually, I think drinking alcohol when you have a hangover is the only surefire cure. <laughs> well, besides well, true homeopathic it's remedy, not really which is a cure a lot of water. Yeah, um, no, it's a cure. The, the hangover will go away. You will be drunk. Of course, you're delaying the inevitable. You're just pushing back the inevitable hangover, but it will get rid of your hangover. Well, but, but let's be clear. Let's be clear. It's actually not treating the hangover. The hangover it has multiple causes, but it, the primary cause is. Dehydration? Well, it's dehydration, but it's not just dehydration. There's actually breakdown products of alcohol that are toxins. And it's, it's really those, that's what really causes the hangover. And, and it takes time for your body to metabolize those. So until your body gets rid of you know, the, the, the downstream effects of the alcohol itself, that's what you, you will have the hangover. By drinking more alcohol, you're just adding more uh, you know, of, that, of the substances to your body. It'll take even longer to metabolize them and get rid of them. It's not treating that. It's, it's just masking it by making you drunk, too drunk to notice that you feel like <laughs> crap. And then you'll feel like even more crap you know when that when that drunk wears off so which is why this is a perfect analogy for the burn thing okay because um so the the homeopathic cure for burning is in fact yeah this these homeopaths are saying that if you get a burn you should put it over a flame instead of running it under cool water and that that will make okay. it uh that'll stop a blister from appearing and it'll heal faster and you'll get smooth skin and it won't hurt as much and the thing is, there some of those things are are right in a way. Uh, that does not mean that it's something good that you should do. For instance, um, 
putting an already burned section of your hand over a flame uh, might make it hurt less as it it's healing, but that's because you've turned your first degree burn into a second or third degree burn by burning off all the nerves. So you don't feel anything anymore because you've destroyed your skin much deeper than you had previously. So in much the same way that drinking more makes it seem like it's working the next day, you're actually making things horribly worse. Terrible idea. Don't Burn your burns. Don't burn your <laughs> burns. Yeah. It seems so intuitive, doesn't it? <laughs> Homeopathy is like a 250-year-old running joke in, in yeah. which they're trying, you know, it's just trying to compound the ridiculousness on top of more ridiculousness to the point, you know, like where trolls. will it end? Yeah. You know, this is one of those examples where people actually hurt themselves and they'll like it because it's reinforcing their fantasy. It certainly creates the impression that there's no practical limit to the degree to which people can believe in in nonsensical things. Just because it's wrapped in some, you know, feel-good ideology or just because somebody's claiming it or, or because they are overly impressed with anecdotal evidence or placebo effects and they just don't understand how easy it is for us to deceive ourselves and therefore when you know, they hear a story that, oh, somebody did this and they felt better. Really? Well, it must work. You know, that, that's as simple sometimes as it gets. Evan, bring us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Yes, I must play for you last week's Who's That Noisy to refresh all of your memories out there. Now, remember, we were looking for a theme for last week's Who's That Noisy, and here we go. We had some very, very interesting guesses this week. Many mm-hmm. of them were wrong. Only one was correct. Only one correct answer. One correct answer. But that's all you need. You so need it was easy person. to determine which one was the first. <laughs> it was a, uh, you know, a series of three, three distinct noises, one apparently not having much to do with the other. But what they all have in common is that those are clocks. Those are noises that actual clocks make. Those are their alarms, in a sense. The first clock you heard was care of the National Audubon Society. It's their bird clock in which there is a bird at each hour position on the clock. And when that hour strikes, you get the bird tweet. And in this case, we heard the robin. Steve, you knew that was a robin, right? Oh, yeah. The second one is a little clip from the lacrosse alarm clock. It's this red sort of lit up obnoxious looking clock that plays a lot of different tunes and the light flashes red in sync with the tune that it's playing. The third one is the world's only steam-powered clock that resides in Vancouver, and on every hour it plays a little whistling tune. So I clipped a little piece of that whistling tune and stuck it there at the end of the noisy. The world's only steam-powered clock. Isn't that fascinating? Ashley, listener from Waukesha, Wisconsin, correctly guessed... So she must have been to Vancouver at some point, and that was perhaps the giveaway, and saw the clock or heard the clock. In any case, she's the winner. Well done, Ashley. Oh, other guesses included? Science fiction movies, uh, UFO communications. Uh, someone said that these were all noises from Disney productions or Disney movies. Um, cell phone. So I think everybody, everybody related that um, the third one to the Close Encounters noise. Yeah, yeah that's the first thing yeah. I thought, too. And now... This week's brand new 
fresh off the presses. Who's that noisy? There's no such thing as a psychic. That's it. Ooh. Okay. Thanks, Evan. That's interesting. I demand I think- a quickie with Bob. A quickie with Bob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You thought you were going to forget. Bob, you got a quickie for us or what? Yes. Thank you, Rebecca. I thought you'd never ask. No, thank you, Bob. Scientists predict new types of ice that may exist in ultra-extreme environments. Cornell researchers using high-powered computers and higher-powered brains predict that there are new phases of water ice that may exist on Neptune, Uranus, and many extrasolar planets. In these environments, atmospheric pressure can reach above 1.5 terapascals, which is equivalent to 15 million normal Earth atmospheres pressing down on you. A lot of pressure. Their models predict a series of stable and never-before-seen forms of ice that no lab on Earth can come close to recreating. These simulations predict that ice becomes metallic not at 15 million atmospheres like many scientists believed, but at 48 million atmospheres. Uh, Before that, though, separate water molecules disappear, replaced instead by networks of hydrogen and oxygen atoms. The ice may also become a stable insulator before it becomes metallic. And finally, the uh, the other big finding that these uh, that these scientists made, or at least that they predicted using their models, was that ice may actually become a quantum liquid in which, counterintuitively, the pressure gets so high that a solid becomes a liquid. So check out physorg.com for more information on this topic. Hope you liked it. Sounds good. Thanks, Bob. Well, good. we have thanks for that quick. We have Bob. a great interview with Eugenie Scott. So let's go to that interview now. Joining us now is Eugenie Scott. Jeannie, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. It's lovely to be back. And Jeannie is from the National Center for Science Education. And you know, I'll go on the record and say that uh, the SGU believes in science education. That's, uh, go out on a limb. That's something that we support. <laughs> Breaking <Yeah>. news. <laughs> Controversy. Now it can be told. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, we've had you on the show several times talking mostly about creationism, intelligent design, and the, their attempts to destroy science education and the good work of the NCSC to uh, to prevent that. But you know, we're having you on this week to talk about a new initiative from the NCSC. So tell us about that. We have found over the last oh, several years, actually, but especially over the last couple of years, that just as teachers get pushback for teaching evolution, um, student complaints, parental complaints, school board level controversies, even state legislation. So now they also are getting comparable pushback for the temerity of teaching global warming and other climate science concepts. So we investigated the situation, checked with other science organizations and science education organization and um, environmental organizations, and uh, they had been hearing the same thing, but nobody was doing anything about it. And their view was, well, you guys do such a good job helping teachers with evolution. You should just take this on. So, you know, we thought hard about it and decided, yeah, we probably should take this on because no one else is doing it and teachers are needing help with this. So we swallowed hard and (laughs) decided to expand because it's a big decision. Mm -hmm. Um, We announced this week that um, we are adding a new member to the board of directors of NCSC, and that is Dr. Peter Glick Mm -hmm. of the Pacific Institute, a very well-known climate scientist and water resources specialist, National Academy of Science member, testified before science uh, Congress many times, very articulate uh, communicator of science. And on staff, a climate scientist uh, named Mark McCaffrey, 
who comes to us from the University of California Ceres Center, a science, uh, climate science uh, institute, where he was their education guy. So we are very happy to have Mark with us so that we have that scientific expertise on staff and also uh, on our board. So we're very excited about this new initiative and a little yeah. scared. As you should be if you take it seriously. So do you think that the kind of things that you've been doing to defend science education from infiltrations from creationism will translate, will apply to the same kind of things that are happening with uh, climate change denial? You know, we have always said when it comes to the creationism and evolution controversy that the science is absolutely necessary, but mm -hmm. it's not sufficient. The good news is that we have the science in evolution. Everybody's quite on the same page. Living things had common ancestors. The universe is old, and all that is very well agreed upon within the scientific community, not necessarily shared by a high enough percentage of the general public, but the scientists are all on the same base. So we have a situation where there's a disconnect between the science community and the public. There's a comparable disconnect between the science community and the public on global warming and uh, climate change issues. And we, the science is necessary, but not sufficient. You have to look at both the teaching of evolution and the teaching of, of climate change as also being political problems. And that's what we deal with. We help uh, teachers and other citizens, school board members, um, to find out how to resolve these controversies that occur at the classroom level or the school district level or the state level. Um, how do you talk to each other? Uh, how do you make a good argument to the school board? What are the things you need to bring in? Um, those kinds of, of approaches translate no matter mm -hmm. what your topic is. One of the reasons why we wanted to get Mark McCaffrey is because we we're all a bunch of evolutionists, you know, we're biologists and geologists, and and we needed somebody who knew the the climate science uh, literature better than we did. We're all working very hard to get up to snuff, but we wanted to have that science expertise on staff and on our board. But really, the kind of bread and butter stuff that NCSE does is a lot of this person to person or um, community-to-community you know, community kind of counseling uh, when somebody calls us and has a problem. You know, I think what, uh, one of the times I was on your really quite wonderful show was talking about the mm -hmm. Kitzmiller versus Dover trial. I think people think of NCSE as this, you know, riding our white horse to the rescue in legal <laughs> cases. No, <laughs> that's, that's a very rare kind of occurrence for us. Most of the time, I mean, the vast majority of, of what we do, you all in the public never hear about it because it's a teacher calling up and asking what should she do about a parent who's complaining about teaching of evolution and teaching of climate change. Um, you know, what are the arguments that she can bring to that parent to uh, keep that kid from being yanked out of the class, for example? So, uh, and that's the sort of stuff that's never going to make the newspaper, obviously. So you're like science so, um, advocacy ninjas. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a, I, I kind of like that image, actually. I mean, you know, can you see me in a cape? <laughs> I can, actually. Nin ninjas don't I wear can. capes. With a <laughs> Ninja, Steve, and a you guys don't oh, muddle yeah. this with the facts. I want to see Jeannie in a cape, okay? 
What's, what, what's well, wrong with me? I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I, know, I know ninjas don't have lightsabers. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. And, and I should have known. Of course, the cape gets in the way when you're climbing through the window and all this. Sure, they can I'd have to be a lot more limber to climb through those windows. But, yeah, I, you know, the ninja kind of image, I'll, I'll work on that, Rebecca. Okay. There, there's a possibility. Are, are you guys, are, are you at all afraid of um, splitting your audience? Because when whenever someone talks to a group of skeptics about global warming, it seems that there are, there's a significant portion of people who self-identify as, as skeptics and science advocacy people who uh, actually don't believe in particularly human-caused global warming. So are you worried at all about splitting your audience? One of the things that we had to think about very carefully as a small and <clears throat> unfunded, underfunded uh, nonprofit <laughs> is, uh, are we going to lose members? And yeah, we know, we figured we were going to lose members on this. And we have. Um, we've already heard from some people who are not going to renew and they're terribly disappointed mm-hmm. with us. On the other hand, uh, we're also going to gain new members. Uh, a lot of people are finding out about NCSC uh, for the first time this week uh, as we're promoting our um, getting out publicity about the climate change initiative. And uh, they're interested in climate change, and they may not be especially interested in evolution. So, uh, you know, we're going to win some and lose some. Um, I think uh, on the whole we'll probably be okay, but there certainly will be a period where uh, membership will go down, and um, uh, that obviously is a concern to uh, a group that doesn't have all that great a budget to start with. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we'll just have to encourage our listeners to start donating more to make up for the people that you've lost. Well, I appreciate that. Jeannie, is there a grant that uh, the organization receives, Some, you know, kind of like a, a thing that, you know, you you bundle donations on top of, but you kind of use a certain amount of money sort of as your... As we did, as money. I mentioned, hire a new staff member. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny. He actually wants a salary. <laughs> what an odd attitude. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we had to raise money in order to um, to expand into this program. Um, I was very, very fortunate that one of my board members uh, was... Um, interested enough and, and concerned enough about this issue that he gave us startup funds. Of course, it's going to be a responsibility that I have to continue uh, supporting this program. And so, yes, we will have to be doing some special fundraising to um, uh, support and to maintain and, and I hope expand the climate well, change just initiative. Despite the topic, the principles are the same, is that you don't want there to be a political infringement upon teaching science based upon what the consensus of scientific opinion is. And you've always gone beyond strictly evolution or biological issues because a lot of the bills that were sort of anti-evolution or or procreationism bills also would throw in things like the Big Bang, you know, which is is a similar issue. You've dealt with issues other than strictly evolution just because it's it's under the same kind of principle, right? Well, we've dealt... Yeah, we, we've dealt with right. evolution broadly, not just biological evolution, but we've dealt, of course, with uh, astro- uh, astronomical evolution, with geological evolution. Yeah. I mean, evolution is a topic that, of course, cross-cuts virtually all of science. So, yes, uh, the universe is old, <laughs> um, the planet has evolved, um, galaxies uh, uh, cumulatively change through time. You know, the universe has had a history. That's what evolution is all about. And biological evolution tends to be the most controversial aspect of that 
wide sweep. And so that tends to be the one that we um, end up talking about the most. But yeah, we certainly have included a number of subjects. And of course, the the other thing that NCSE has dealt with over the years is the nature of science itself. Uh, how do scientists answer questions uh, about an, the natural world, and how do we explain the natural world? What is the procedure that we use? What kind of thinking do we use? And uh, helping uh, the public and helping students understand that is very critical to the um, evolution issue, and it will be important, I think, also to the um, issue of global warming. Because I, I like the way you put it, Steve. You said that this is uh, one of the concerns that we have with both of these topics is, is that the science not be compromised by political issues. And that is a, a major concern. In both evolution and climate change, you have very strong agreement in the scientific community that these are valid sciences. In climate change, there's very uniformity of opinion that the planet is getting warmer, that people have a lot to do with it. The other similarity that we see between teaching evolution and teaching uh, climate change is that there is a very strong ideological foundation that motivates the opposition to teaching these subjects. In the case of evolution, obviously the motivation is a religious ideology. Uh, in the case of climate change, uh, kind of like Rebecca was, was alluding to earlier, it's not, it's more a political or a, and or an economic ideology. I mean, people will argue that, um, uh, global chain, uh, global warming, um, is not happening because the consequences really are unacceptable. I mean, they may not put it quite in those terms, but that appears to be the motivation. Um, the claim is that global warming is invalid science, that it's merely a political movement of uh, liberals who are trying to increase central government, and the central government is going to tell us what to do, and this will impinge upon American individualism. The, these are all the kinds of ideological issues that um, appear to be motivating a, a great deal of the uh, anti uh, global warming uh, perspective. And just like the religious ideology that motivates anti-evolution, they will f try to argue that the science is weak. The science of evolution is weak. Uh, the science of global warming is weak. Uh, and uh, whereas actually within the science community, both evolution and uh, and global warming are considered to be very firmly based in, in uh, very solid science. So that's another parallel. I mean, we, we keep seeing more and more similarities between problems teachers have teaching evolution and problems that they have teaching climate change. Yeah, I think another parallel is that the, uh, the opposition are both forms of denialism. You know, there's evolution denial and climate change denial, and they, they often use very similar intellectual strategies uh, in order to to promote those ideologies. So you you know if you can teach and define and explore the process of denialism, how that works, why it's not legitimate, why it's pathological science, 
you, you can you, you cover both ends. You cover both evolution denial and climate change denial, right? Yes, and uh, we find some very definite parallels in the in the strategies that are used. I mean, uh, first of all, attack the science. Right. Uh, because if the science is weak, then the whole thing falls. I mean, obviously, there's no point in teaching weak science in the schools. So the creationists have attacked evolution for decades. Um, because if they can present evolution as a weak or invalid science, then obviously it has no place in the science classroom. Same argument is being made by the climate change denialists that, well, it's really just the sun, or it's sunspots, or it's just normal cycles, or it's this, that, or the other thing. Um, it's, not, um, uh, it's not happening, or it is happening, but people aren't responsible. Uh, I mean, there, there's a variety of positions that are taken. And the other uh, really interesting parallel that we're, and distressing parallel that we're finding that affects education is the, the anti-creation and the anti-climate change position are being packaged, if you will, as a uh, critical thinking for students or academic freedom for teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, academic freedom acts, which have sprung up like so many little toadstools in the last six or seven years, um, often bundle evolution, global warming, origin of life, stem cells, things that cloning, things that, that the religious right is, is distressed about. These tend to get bundled into these same bills and presented that uh, teachers should have the academic freedom to uh, present all views on these issues and should not be fettered by their school districts um, and restricted from uh, going beyond the curriculum and teaching these ideas. So basically what this is, what these bills try to be, is, is a get-out-of-jail-free card for creationist teachers. Yeah. It's a dog whistle, if you will, saying, go ahead and teach creationism because we've just passed a law in your state that says your school district can't tell you to knock it off. Now, the good news is that even though my colleague Glenn Branch counted 38 bills over the last five or six years that have fallen to this academic freedom kind of category, not all of which, by the way, include global warming, but they all include evolution, um, there's been just you know dozens of these bills. Uh, only one of them so far has passed, mm -hmm. and that's uh, the... Um, uh, Louisiana bill in 2008, and and if I can, uh, guys, just put a um, a little be in the ear of your of your listeners or uh, a fly in the peripheral vision or whatever other analogy we want to use. These bills don't fail on their own. They fail because citizens like the people listening to this program are willing to take a stand f against bad science for their kids, and they're willing to write those letters, to call those legislators, to call up on the talk shows, and, and really come out in, in favor of, of opposing these bills. So we depend upon people like that. You know, we can only present, we can only provide the information. We need the people on the ground to really carry the water. Right. So we're very, very grateful to the citizens of this country for carrying on this fight. Yeah, but you serve as a clearinghouse, if you will, for, for all of these we efforts. Do. And that, some, that's a, a, a pivotal role. I mean, somebody's got to be that because it's, it's hard to have, you know, a grassroots kind of an effort without there being some central organizing group. And I think that's why, you know, people look to you to, to fill that role and you do it very well. We, we try our best, and uh, we have been helpful. But as I say, we really depend on the citizens who are willing to do it. Right. You can't just say, let, let NCSC do it. Exactly. 
<laughs> that isn't going to happen. Uh, we, there, we're, I'm out here in Oakland, California. I have a staff of about 10, including support people rounding up, including part-timers. And I assure you, we cannot be in 15,000 separate school districts. Yeah. So citizens, step up to the plate. We need you. Uh, it, other than just applying what you've already been doing with creationism to climate change and hiring new experts, which I think is a great idea. Is there anything else, any other aspect of, of this new initiative that you want to talk about? Any, any Anything bold that you're doing? On our website, we have uh, new resources that we just opened up this week, and clearly we will be adding to them over the years and months. Our, our evolution resources didn't uh, crop up all at once, and they, they have grown gradually, but we have some basic stuff there on our website that we hope will be helpful to especially teachers, but anyone interested in this topic. We have a Climate Change 101 section, which is sort of basic scientific explanations, but also... Um, uh, links to uh, uh, sites that will give a more in-depth presentation of the basic science. We have a section on climate change denial, uh, where we present some of the common arguments of deniers and the politics involved and uh, the varieties of denial, and there'll be a lot to add on that. And links, of course, to, science, to sites like uh, skepticalscience.com, which is a wonderful site uh, which lists the... Uh, main hundred or so denier arguments and their scientific refutations. We have a section on teaching that we'd, um, we hope to expand. Uh, Mark, Mac- Mark McCaffrey is a very experienced, he spent uh, 10, 15 years in climate science education, so uh, he, he would really like to try to build up those resources for us. And in good old NCSE fashion, we have a section of our new climate portion of the website on taking action. If you need to either defend climate science or you need to support climate science, uh, there's where you can go for some information. All right, Jeannie, thanks again. We always enjoy having you on the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. All right, and good luck with your new initiative. Thank you. Thanks, Jeannie. Thanks, Jeannie. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. This week, Bob is going to be filling in for me, just so he can keep his perfect 100% record going (laughs) one more week. He had to skip town last week, now he's actually taking over science or fiction just to exempt himself again. You know, in baseball, you have to have a minimum number of plate appearances in order for your average to count. Mm, good point. So, interesting. I'm not playing baseball. Well, You're just trying to work in those sports analogies any way you can. <laughs> I took flack by a listener for last week because I mentioned that I thought, had thought that Ted Williams, in his famous 1941 run to 400, uh, began his first game 0 for 4, and that wasn't true. He had a hit in his first game. And, uh, mm. yeah. You screwed up, you know. Well, you know, I mean, listener had, had to point that out. listeners knew anything about sports. So I stood corrected. Okay, guys, you ready? Yep. Yes. Yes. Okay, for this week's science or fiction, number one, marine scientists propose putting a price on whales in order to save them. Number two, according to a new mouse study, intestinal worm infections help treat lung cancer. And number three, researchers associate lack of sleep with increased appetite. Let's see. Evan, you go first this time. Okay. Hmm. 
marine scientists propose putting a price on whales in order to save them. How? I mean, what, what, under <laughs> what authority would they be able to put a price on a whale, in, right, that anyone would respect? Do they have this sort of power to do that? I mean, to, uh, I'm not quite getting the gist here. Penalties, I suppose, right? But governments have to impose those penalties. and Usually, you know, just a bunch of scientists can't start penalizing people. Nobody will pay any attention to them. Penalizing in what way? I mean, I think you're misinterpreting. Oh, am I? Well, putting a price on whales in order to save them. But isn't there already some sort of intrinsic value? Or... So, well, let's move on. Uh, the new mouse study done by the folks, the fine folks down in Disney World. Intestinal worm infections help treat lung cancer. Um, when I start thinking about worms and treatments and these sorts of things, I start thinking about, you know, like when they put maggots on uh, open wounds and stuff to what they create that, you know, they, they heal it up, right? They, I'm not exactly sure how it happens, but uh, applying uh, maggots to uh, open wounds seems to be something that, uh, that does actually work as unappealing and uh, ancient as it might be. Uh, I believe there is something to that. So perhaps this, along those similar lines, could make this one true. The last one, lack of sleep with increased appetite. Well, this is uh, this is interesting because when I think lack of sleep, I think if somebody's awake more, are they more, is their appetite increased or are they more likely to eat just for the sake of being awake and their body sort of needs, is craving the fuel or energy? simply based on the fact that it is it happens to be awake. But I'm not quite sure that that's exactly what we're getting at here. Um I I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that I am not understanding the marine scientist one exactly correctly, so I, I'd be I think at my own peril choosing that one as the fiction. So therefore that leaves me with the lack of sleep and increased appetite one and I'm gonna say that that one's the fiction. Okay. Jay, you're next. Okay, so the marine scientists putting a price on whales in order to save them. I'm interpreting that as they're saying that that people may be fined or would be have a financial responsibility if they end up hurting or killing any whales. You know, whether this is a news item or if it's a, a complete fabrication, regardless, my 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 intention in whether I made this or the or the news item is really different than what than what you guys are. Are saying so. What I'll add to this is that by when I meant or what was meant by putting a price on whales was that was that the idea is that yeah yeah you can kill whales but you gotta you gotta pay. Oh, okay. So you if you kill a whale you have to. So pay. Evan, you can now that I've given that information. If you want, if you want to change your guess, oh, boy. Uh, I think it would be fair to let you once I once I cleared that up. Okay, I'm gonna stick with my answer. Okay. So, Jay, continue. Um, I mean, regardless of what you say, Bob, I'm going to interpret it the way I want to because I'm studying homeopathy. (laughs) Well, okay. So that being said, uh, I'm going to think that that one is science because I could see them trying something like that in order to to save the lives of whales. Uh, The second one about the intestinal worm helping to treat lung cancer, I find that very strange. I mean, I'm thinking maybe that the – that maybe the worm secretes something that could help fight off cancer or something along those lines. I could see possibly making sense, but I'm really iffy on that one. The, the last one here, 
I am definitely going to think the last one about sleep increasing lack of sleep increasing appetite. I'm going to completely and utterly agree with that one through my own life experience. So I'm going to say that the worms helping lung infections is absolutely false. It's cancer. Thank you. Okay, Steve. Marine scientist proposes putting a price on whales in order to save them. So if you interpret that as you have to pay some sort of fee in order to hunt whales that uh, that at least makes sense. That's the that's the way the situation is with buffalo, I believe, that you, you can hunt a certain limited number of buffalo and the, the fee is very high in order to do that. So the idea is out there. So that's plausible um, that a marine scientist said that. The, the mouse study looking at intestinal worm infections helping treat lung cancer – Again, that's it's hard to, you know, in a mouse, you know, it's, it's easy to believe any sort of outcome like this. There have been a number of studies recently looking at, you know, intestinal worms and changing metabolism or having an effect that, you know, that could be exploited. Uh, so this, again, I think is uh, plausible. Of course, I didn't hear about this. The third one to me is the easiest. That's I'm just say I, I agree with that one. The one about the lack of sleep, increasing appetite. So uh, it's definitely between one and two for me. Both seem plausible. I guess I'll I'll go with the intestinal worm one being the fiction, um, just because there's probably the m- most opportunities to uh, to screw with that one. Okay, so let me see who's left. Oh, Rebecca. Yeah. Thanks. Don't forget <laughs> me. Uh, I don't get right. why you guys didn't understand the whale thing. I. That makes okay, sense good. to me. That that, I mean, maybe maybe I'm still misunderstanding. It, but you know, we've got uh, we've got carbon credits. You know, we've got uh, for for ages, people have sought to intertwine economics and environmental policy in a way that could benefit the environment. It it makes sense. Um, if if you can if you can make that happen, oftentimes. Um, it can be really great for the environment because people think with their wallets. So, yeah, I believe that that's true. The uh, lack of sleep one, I, I think, is, like Steve said, yeah, I mean, there's tons of anecdotal evidence to support that. And I'm sure a good deal of research as well. But from my perspective, yeah, you stay up late, you get hungry. Um, so that makes perfect sense. Uh, intestinal worms, yeah, I've I've seen... I've heard of a lot of studies recently, as Steve says, that they can treat all sorts of things or that they're trying to figure out if they can treat all sorts of things. But lung cancer, that's way more extreme than I've seen. So I'm going to go with that one being the fiction as well. Okay. So Rebecca J. and Steve thinks um, intestinal worms are fiction. And Evan thinks that the uh, lack of sleep, right, Evan? Yes, and uh, so nobody picked number one. So I'll start with that. A marine scientist proposed putting a price on whales in order to save them. And that one is science. Um, yeah. This was uh, this is pretty interesting. I was, I'm sorry if, there was a, if it was a little confusing. But uh, what, what makes this a little bit counterintuitive is that uh, typically people that are against whaling um, would pretty much cringe at any idea of actually letting people – permitting people to kill whales 
because you put you put a price on them. And um, it, I was a little bit surprised that the whale harvesting has actually doubled since the 1990s. So it's not actually getting any better. It's getting worse. Uh, this is despite anti-whaling organizations spending m- many millions per year for lobbying and education and protests and even the, you know, the dangerous confrontations on the, on the high seas that we've seen in so many uh, documentaries on TV. So an, an economist and two marine scientists writing in the journal Nature proposed putting a price on each whale in order to save them. Uh, the, art, the name of the article is A Market Approach to Saving the Whales. The authors write, we propose an alternative path forward that could break the deadlock, quotas that could be bought and sold, creating a market that would be economically, ecologically, and socially viable for whalers and whalers alike. Um, this is similar to trading markets that already exist for th- things like air pollutants, like sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides. Uh, what, so what th- would happen would be that th- they'd have an auctioning off uh, um, of annual whale catch quota, so you can trade them in a carefully controlled global market. So, uh, so once you do that, they believe that you know th- they would create these quotas that would be uh, tolerable, and uh, and they they think that uh, although it would it wouldn't be easy, uh, there would be some difficulties that it would it would really help uh, to uh, you know to, to to put a stop to uh, you know kind of the, the runaway uh, whaling that was that we're still seeing to this day. Uh, so I thought it was an interesting proposal. I'm curious to see what happens with that. So we've got two and three. I'll go to three. Researchers associate lack of sleep with increased appetite. And that one is science as well. Sorry, Evan. Uh, this one is um, from the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Uh, researchers uh, Christian Benef- Benedict and Helgi Schoth of the Department of Neuroscience in Uppsala University. They studied the brains of healthy males after a normal night's sleep and another group of males after a night with no sleep at all. And they show what the key, the key thing that they showed was that um, the specific area of the brain associated with appetite sensation is activated more by images of food in the group of men that got no sleep. So that's kind of how they determine this. Um, yeah, it kind of makes sense that that if you were awake all night and uh, you're potentially not just laying in bed with your eyes opening open, you're you know you're active, you're moving around, and, and that would uh, you know increase your appetite just because you're the the you're, you're expending more calories. But I think uh, they haven't really given a, a reason for this. But um, for some reason, if you're not if you don't sleep at all, that part of your brain gets activated uh, by by seeing uh, images of food. So uh, which I, and of course I think it's reasonable to to. Then conclude that they're actually, you know, more hungry. I wonder if they even actually ask them, "Hey, are you, you know, are you more hungry today than than normal?" So I didn't want to say too much while I was giving my answer, but this is the the, the association between uh, lack of sleep and increased appetite is old news, right? That's clearly well established. So, you know, that's why that, that was the easiest one for me, unless this was contradicting a lot of existing research. Yeah, and, and the the primary hypothesis is that it's hormonal. That essentially lack of sleep causes you to secrete uh, appetite increasing hormones. So that that there's other research which shows that that's probably the mechanism. Okay, I, I don't know why I picked another brain <laughs> news item. Uh, I will not do that anymore. Know your audience, um, Bob. No, I think that's yeah. a good job, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Solid. Yeah, yeah. Eat shit. Uh, you since know, lack you of sufficient. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I do feel better because I think last time you guys swept me. But uh, since uh, since lack of sufficient sleep is a worsening problem in our in our modern twenty four hour 
uh, society, it's Im- this is it's important to add poor sleep as yet another risk factor for yeah. weight gain. So uh, yeah, I talk to patients about that all the time, actually, because I see a lot of people who are in the vicious cycle of poor sleep, gain weight, which makes the sleep even worse, makes it harder to exercise, they gain more weight, they have, mm. their sleep gets worse, which makes them even more hungry. So it's, a, it's unfortunately a, effect, a self-reinforcing yeah. cycle, and they have to break out of it by sort of addressing all of these things at once. They have to address their sleep and their exercise and their weight in a sort of in a concerted way and not just focus on one of them. So uh, this, of course, means that number two, according to a new mouse study, intestinal worm infections help treat lung cancer is, of course, fiction. And this was based on an actual uh, news item uh, that's pretty much the same, except the uh, the intestinal worms help with uh, help repair lung damage and the inflammation, but have no have had no real effect on lung cancer, which was a little extreme. So, uh, Rebecca, you were right there. That was a little uh, a little too optimistic. But um, this was a new study published in Nature Medicine that had shown that the immune reaction that mice have to intestinal worms promoted wound healing in the lungs. Cytokines, which are a protein that helps the body get rid of the, the, the worms in this case, also help heal lung injuries and inflammation. And um, it was interesting. The lung injuries were actually caused by the worms as they made their way to the mice's gut. So they're, they're like traveling through the body and they just kind of like barrel through lots of different things, lots of different tissues. And they, I guess, this made holes in the um, in the lungs and so they had wounds in the lungs and there was inflammation. So what's happening is that the immune response that these intestinal worms cause have the beneficial effect of actually also uh, healing and helping with the infl- inflammation of the of the wounds in the lung. Now, it's possible that inducing a similar type of immune response in humans could potentially help treat wounds, including lung injuries caused by respiratory infections like pneumonia. So there might, uh, if, if this if this effect transfers to humans, well, which it can can do sometimes, um, it, it could be of, of some benefit by by inducing this specific uh, immune response that these that these worms cost. So good job, everybody. Cool. Except cool. Evan. Thank you, Aww. sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evan did well, too. He just didn't get it right. Yeah, well. You know. Did well, just not well enough. <laughs> he did well-ish. Well-ish. Yeah. Well-ish. <laughs> well-ish. <laughs> Welsh. He's Welsh. He's Welsh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for covering for me, Bob. Jay, do you have Surely. a good quote for us this week? This is a quote sent in, uh, sent in by a listener named Pierce McGuire from Ireland. From Ireland. Ireland. I say. It's a quote from K.E. Van Hold. As I look back on nearly half a century of research, I am struck by the fact that my life in science has never proceeded along a straight line toward a goal, but in a series of steps in different and unexpected directions. It reminds me of the walks I love to take in Paris, not journeys toward a particular goal, but random strolls that were directed at each corner by the curious or beautiful that appeared down one street or the other. I think it's a good way to explore and a great way to live. K.E. Van Ho, a biochemist of some note. Steve? Yeah. I have an, I have an announcement. Me. Last week I mentioned that the horrific uh, preacher Helen Ukpabio was coming to America to preach her craziness about witchcraft and whatnot. And I asked if anyone would be organizing any kind of counter protest. Well, there are people. Uh, Alvaro was very kind to write in. Um, he's from Houston and he says that some of the Houston atheists are organizing a protest slash fundraiser, uh, while 
Ukpabio is in town. So you can go to a, a Facebook page that is linked in the show notes and get more information. Awesome. That's some good grassroots skepticism. Word up. Because we don't like witch hunters. No. We do not. And even if you are not an atheist, don't be put off by the fact that it's being organized by Houston atheists. Uh, If you also protest the fact that this woman is encouraging people to track down and murder children and the elderly for being witches... You should join the cause because right. it's a good one. So yeah, basically, if you care about other people, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, thanks, Rebecca. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Cheers, thanks, Steve. Steve. Hey, My pleasure. Hey, oh. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptics Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice.